Thank you very much for having me today. It's wonderful to be with you. I rate this as one of the best training courses for uh, Christianity in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, absolutely brilliant. You're going to learn a lot, and it's wonderful to be uh, with you. I'm going to open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your amazing, wonderful word that you've blessed us with. We thank you for your amazing grace, and we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word this morning, that we will um, consider your truth that you've given us, and that we will apply it in our lives. Amen. Amen. My topic for this morning is uh, coping with chaos, and many of us have all sorts of disasters that happen in our lives. I'm going to look particularly this morning at violent attacks, so even although um, sickness, illness can bring absolute chaos and pandemonium into your life, I'm not going to be dealing with those uh, sorts of areas. We're going to be dealing mainly with violence. So coping with chaos and how do we as Christians respond to this? Quick introduction. Uh, this is my family. I don't know if you can see us very clearly. I have it on good authority from um, an international, uh, what do you call him, model, Calvin Hammond, that I'm by far the best looking person in this photograph. He even said to me, Uncle Charles, you look sick. There are four pillars for coping with chaos that we need to uh, be aware of. The first is we need to do theological and spiritual preparation. We need to do mental preparation, physical preparation, and we also need to develop our skills. We today are just going to look at the theological and the spiritual preparation for chaos or for violent attack. On the 25th of July, 1993, as Dr. Peter Hammond has just mentioned, we were sitting in a church service in Kenilworth, Cape Town, uh, St. James Church, when all of a sudden there was a noise at the front door of the church and terrorists stepped in with their automatic rifles and hand grenades and they had attached nails to the outside of the grenades to get more shrapnel and they lobbed the grenades into the congregation and opened up fire with their automatic rifles into the congregation. Uh, you'll see from the photograph here there are some of the um, corpses, uh, the people that were murdered that day, 11 were murdered and over 50 were injured in the attack and it became internationally known as the St. James Massacre. If you look carefully at the photograph, I was sitting uh, by the right door in the photograph at the back of the church, three rows in front of the far right door and uh, just to the left in the pew third from the back. And we can see another photograph here. Uh, in that area, there was a bench that was totally ripped up by the grenades that blew up in that area. So what you're looking at is a missing bench over there with a hole in the floor, in the concrete floor, was a hole blown into it from the force of the grenade that exploded and the bench was just in smithereens. This was a young man, uh, a Russian sailor. The church had a ministry to sailors that would come around the coast at the Cape that stopped the ships would lay over and to uh, prepare themselves for the rest of their journey and they would fetch the sailors at the docks and take them through to the church. And this is one of the sailors, Dmitry Mafigon. 
he had a grenade land in his lap and blew uh, off both legs and one arm. Uh, he uh, remained in Cape Town after that, and he's taken on South African citizenship, and the church flew his fiance out uh, to marry them, and they got married in the St. James Church later on. Just another angle of the uh, attack that took place, uh, the grenade that landed. Another photograph of uh, those who were murdered that evening. And so there were two young uh, three young people sitting far at the back of the church, um, two young girls, I'm friends with one of them at, uh, right now, and they um, all went down onto the ground, or two of them, the little boy, young boy, and two young girls sitting together. The, one of the, the boy and one of the young girls went down onto the ground as the attack started. He, the young guy then uh, went up onto his haunches to pull down the other girl because she was so frightened she didn't know what to do, she couldn't move. And as he went up into the air to pull her down onto the ground, he took a bullet in the head and died instantly. And uh, another young man, uh, 21-year-old, he had a grenade land in the, um, the walkway next to his seating, and he fell on top of the grenade and took a full body blow to himself to save the lives of those sitting around them. So really uh, in interesting to see these young people who gave their lives uh, for people that they might not even have known in one instance sitting around them in the church. And in the same way, Jesus Christ uh, gave his life for us. And that's, it's a, a great example I can use for that uh, whenever I have interviews concerning this issue. Here's a Bible with blood on it after the attack. And so we got to ask ourselves, how do we prepare for a fight? Um, I returned fire at the attackers. I took uh, shots at them inside the church. Uh, by God's grace, I hit one of them inside the church. His name was Kaya Makoma. And they um, then uh, left the church. I ran out of the back door and uh, found them outside. One of them was still uh, standing at the left back door of the getaway car, looking at the entrance they'd come in from and out again and uh, I took another couple of shots at them outside and they drove off another two shots outside and uh, it's really interesting because uh, Kaya um, I eventually went to the prison I went to take the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to Kaya the man that I shot um, his blood got onto the seats of the getaway car he ended up in the high court and I had to testify against him but later on I was speaking to another friend of mine who is a former gangster who loves Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and is now a prominent pastor in Gugaletu. Vuyu, will you please stand up? This is Vuyu, my friend Vuyu. <laughs> Vuyu and I were chatting about the St. James Massacre one day and then I found out that it was Vuyu who encouraged and got Kaya involved in gangsterism. And uh, this is when Vuyu was... Uh, BC, before Christ. And uh, Voyu was a, a very bad guy. He escaped from jail. You need to hear his testimony one day. They've actually made a movie of his, his, his life. And um, he was a fugitive, and he ended up on the front page of the local newspapers in Cape Town as he, he managed to get away from the police on so many occasions. Uh, but what a difference in life. Uh, Kaya sitting in jail for the rest of his life for being involved in bank robberies, and Voyu is praising God and leading people 
to salvation in Christ, uh, working amongst the, the most notorious gangsters in Google Air So praise God. Buyu, I'm really excited that you're here. Well, <laughs> in the theological and sp- spiritual preparation, how do, we, how do we look at God's word? How do we find what we need to understand for these sorts of atrocities that possibly could happen in our lives, especially uh, living in South Africa. We're going to look at self-defense in the Old Testament. In Genesis 4, we read about the first murder that took place. You might know that Cain murdered Abel, and as you should know, there were no firearms available at the time. The evil in Cain's heart was the cause of the murder, not the availability of the murder weapon. And so what was God's response to this murder? It wasn't to ban rocks or knives or whatever might have been used. God dealt with the murderer and banished the murderer. The sixth commandment tells us, you shall not murder. Some old translations have the word kill. We need to distinguish between killing and murder. Christians are allowed to kill under certain circumstances, like we'll be seeing now in the lecture. But here the scripture is talking about murder as the taking of an innocent life. You may not take an innocent life under any circumstances. In Exodus 22, verses 2 to 3, we read, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. So the scriptures here is talking about a threat to our life and when it can be met with lethal force, lethal being deadly force. So a threat to our life can be met with lethal force and we are not to kill, or shall I say, in a life-threatening situation, we are allowed to use lethal force to protect ourselves. We are not to kill a person in non-life-threatening circumstances. And so the scripture is saying, When it's light, you can see the person. If he's not armed, he's just stealing an apple out of your kitchen. You don't take out your machine gun and blow him away. So if it's a threat to your life, it's dark, um, you can't see what's going on, it's a life-threatening situation, then you may take the life of the attacker. Proverbs 25 verse 26 tells us, Like a muddied spring or polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. In our evangelical world of Christianity today, we seem to raise up and emulate or want to emulate and praise people who show cowardice in the face of the enemy. It hasn't always been like that. All right? This is a whole new strange wave of unbiblical teaching that's going on in our churches today. The righteous man needs to stand up against the wicked. He doesn't He doesn't become a doormat for the wicked. What about self-defense? In the New Testament, so many people will argue, they'll talk about pre-cross. In other words, pre-cross, God was all about hell and damnation, and then when Jesus came, God changed, and everything uh, changed to grace and love and mercy. And um, so therefore, maybe in the Old Testament you could defend yourself, but you can't anymore in the New Testament or after Um, after the death of Christ. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's the same. He is God. He was with God. 
and he doesn't change. And so the teaching remains the same. Malachi 3 verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. And so unless, unless something has been particularly um, emphatically told to us in the New Testament that things have changed from the Old, what you read in the Old Testament stands. And so we can clearly read that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17. In Luke 22, verse 36, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's sending them out for the second time. First time he told them that they mustn't take anything with them um, and that they'll be provided for. And at the second time he says to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So Jesus speaking to his disciples is telling his disciples to buy the best, most fanciest military weapon of their time. Many people will argue that this was a spiritual sword he was talking about, but later they actually pull swords out and show them to Jesus. And also it wasn't a spiritual sword that was later used by Peter to take off the ear of a soldier. So they clearly were carrying swords, real swords. People will argue and say, but Jesus Christ rebuked Peter when he used the sword to cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Jesus told him that this is very bad and he mustn't do this and he must get rid of his sword. Well, let's have a look at what the scripture says. We've got to look at the context in this passage, Matthew 26. Then Jesus said to him, speaking to Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And so we see that Peter's trying to inter interfere with God's plan of salvation for us and Jesus is saying, you don't need your sword to protect the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ. I can call on 12 legions of angels these things need to happen around us. But he also didn't say get rid of the sword because he had told them, his disciples, to buy swords. He said, put it back in its place. In other words, there are times when we don't need to have a gun or a sword uh, to protect ourselves. Under Roman law, this is a quote from Copel, um, who's an, uh, an author, in his book, The Human Right of Self-Defense, and he says, under Roman law, citizens had a right to carry personal arms. However, Roman law forbade the Jews and other subject people to carry swords. So the Jews weren't allowed to carry swords under penalty of death. Apparently, the apostles of Jesus violated this law by carrying a pair of swords. A summary of all the laws of the Bible is put into two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So we have a responsibility towards our neighbors. You are your neighbor's keeper. And who was considered a neighbor in Scripture? Well, we all know the story of the Good Samaritan, a person that went out of their way to help 
the person who had been struck down or attacked, the victim of violence. In Revelation 21, we see a list of absolutely disgraceful uh, issues that God, that God hates. And he has a special place in the lake of fire for people who take part in these. And here is what it tells us in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire. What is the first sin mentioned here? The cowards, the cowardly. And so in our churches today, we have the cowards and their cowardly acts being promoted. Um, just as one example, um, Dr. Peter Hammond and I were on a radio show on Radio Tigerberg, and after we left the studio, um, somebody called the studio in, in the office and asked to speak to me, and so I went and took the phone call. And this man was irate that Peter and I were teaching from Scripture that you have a responsibility to defend yourself. In fact, we went even further, and Peter explained how that men have to love their wives in such a way that they're willing to die for their wives, because we are told in Scripture not to be cowards, but to be prepared uh, that we need to treat our wives like Christ treated the church, and he died for the church. And so this man went on to tell us, or tell me on the phone, how that men broke into his house and raped his wife in front of them, and he did the spiritual thing. He did nothing and prayed. So I said to him, you, you weren't being spiritual. You were a disgrace to the name of Christ. How dare you stand and watch your wife? You should have taken whatever you could, beat them with your fists, anything. You should have been prepared to die to stop your wife being raped. And then we have this idea of being spiritual, is being unarmed, being a pacifist, and being a coward. Well, the scripture is very clear, is that the spiritual man is the man who loves God's law. He's the man who can discern between right and wrong. That's the spiritual man, not the man who's a pacifist, who's lazy, and who's cowardly. And so, let us carry on. Did Jesus Christ teach pacifism? Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, referring to the Old Testament. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And so many people will look at the scripture and say, well, we must never fight, we must never take up arms, we must never try and protect anybody, because... It is God's will for the bad guy to do what he needs to do. Well, Jesus was clearing up a confusion here. The people of his day were saying that people in their personal capacity could mete out justice, which is incorrect. All right, so there's a confusion that the meeting out of justice, which is proper for the civil government, the meeting out of justice is something the government does as God's ministers of justice, and it wasn't proper for an individual to do. And so people were saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is what the authorities should be applying in a court of law for justice. They were saying that I personally can meet out justice. And so Jesus Christ is fixing this, this challenge. Also, the punishment must be proportional to the crime. And so there's a bit of confusion here. People are talking about the meeting out of justice 
which is the God-ordained responsibility of the civil magistrate. They're saying it applies to uh, individuals. And Christ is saying, no, it doesn't apply to individuals. It applies to the civil authorities. And he's also saying, by the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is that the, the punishment must be proportional to the crime. In other words, if you steal a piece of bread, you don't hang the person. Right? That's not being proportional. And so the Bible teaches us, under circumstances, when there's theft taking place, it tells you and teaches you about restitution, replacing that which you've stolen. So what was the evil in this context too? Where it says that we mustn't um, um, deal with the evil person. Well, it's talking about a slap, a slap in the face. It's talking about an insult. Jesus isn't teaching that if somebody wants to rape your daughter or murder your son, that you must sit around and watch it happening and think you're spiritual when actually you're a disgrace to the name of Christ. And so a slap here is an insult we're dealing with. Going back to there, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him also. If you get insulted, tough luck. Take it on the cheek and walk away. Don't shoot somebody because they insulted you. Although some people might disagree with me on that one. Both the Old and New Testaments teach individual self-defense, even if it means taking the assailant's life in certain circumstances. Jesus Christ also condemned false teaching. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We had an excellent uh, presentation by Daniel. Right? God's law stands, and his commandments do not change. Resisting an attack isn't, is uh, not to be confused with taking revenge. And so we see here in Romans 13, who is it that takes revenge? Um, God's servants, the civil authorities, godly civil authorities. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, talking about the civil authorities. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. All right, so, in our circumstances at St. James Church, when the attack took place, somebody accused me later of when I ran outside the church and the attack was over, they said to me, you were then taking revenge. So... This person knew his Bible. And he said to me, when the attack took place inside the church, you returned fire. You took three shots there at the bad guys. You hit one of them. That is a biblical response. You running out the back door of the church and following up, that was outside of the realm of Scripture. You were running after them to take revenge. And I had to explain to him that that wasn't the case. When I got outside the church and I saw the getaway car, they were not driving away. One man was standing at the back left door of the car. He had his rifle on his hip, and he was standing looking at the door that they had come out of. And all I can think of is that he wasn't standing there to greet the people and shake their hands and thank them for coming to the service. He was hoping, possibly, that I was going to come running out of there because I shot one of them. And at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they made it very clear that that's why they ran out of the church was because they were being shot at and one of their men, uh, men Kaya Makoma, had been injured. Um, it wasn't a bad injury. It was just a, a bullet wound to the hand, but um, that's how he was caught because the blood from his hand got onto the seat of the getaway car. 
So, I did not take revenge, just to uh, get everything in order. If the view of those who reject self-defense was true in the world of Christianity, then Christianity would allow tyrants to have complete control over people knowing they would have no resistance. And they could do whatever they want. And you find that with unarmed populations. Tyranny uh, goes crazy in those areas. In Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, which isn't democratic or republic, where I've done a lot of ministry, the rebel soldiers entered a church there uh, of friends of mine, uh, colleagues of mine that I work with in the Congo, and they were told by the rebel soldiers, the church leaders were told by the rebel soldiers, that they must stop praying. They're not allowed to have any more prayer meetings because the prayer meetings of the Christians were causing the war to turn badly against the rebels. I don't know how many of us could ever be accused of our prayers changing, changing a war zone or what is happening in a war zone. But the Christians in the Congo did not have a committee meeting or a get-together for the church to discuss whether they should carry on with their prayer meeting or not, like most of us would have, would have done. Like the government tells us to close our churches and we all run away as fast as possible when there's not even a terrorist attack, but never mind. We didn't even need rebel soldiers to tell us to close our churches. They just had to tell us there was a virus and we all closed everything down. But here we have the church carrying on praying. And they said to the pastor, if you carry on praying, your church, we're going to bury you alive, pastor. And they carried on. And the rebels came and buried the pastor alive. Uh, left his wife and three children behind. And I said to my colleagues in the Congo, I said, why didn't the deacons take up arms, go to the rebel soldiers and say, go ahead, make our day? And they said, no, but we've been disarmed. The government's taken all of our firearms away from us. We can't do that. And then the pastor said to me, that's interesting, you know, there's a mining area where everybody's armed. Not even the soldiers of the government will go in there to disarm the people because everybody's armed. And he said, there's no crime there. Pastors don't get murdered there. This is everybody lives in peace. And so the penny dropped. And so that kind of thuggery with the rebel soldiers murdering the pastor can only happen in a gun-free zone. Imagine if the church was all armed. Do you think they would have taken the pastor out? Three or four rebel soldiers would have come up against a congregation of a hundred armed people. What do you think would have happened? Well, they wouldn't have walked into the church in the first place. That's what would have happened. In South Africa, yeah, uh, on the border with Lesotho, um, if you're not from South Africa, you might know there's, or might not know, that there's massive, um, hectic attacks against farmers in South Africa. Uh, m most of the time, nothing even gets stolen. Um, it's just tortures that take place, terrible things, uh, burning people with irons, a woman's breast with, with irons, uh, blow torches, burning their bodies, um, amputating parts of their bodies while they're still alive, uh, raping the woman in front of the men, um, absolutely disgraceful things that go on. Um, but there's a farmer on the border of Lesotho and the Free State. And uh, he and his wife were sleeping one night. And three o'clock in the morning, the farmer got up to go feed his chickens. He took two workers with him. And off they went to the chicken coop. It was well known. 
between his workers and his wife that he never carried his gun with him at 3 o'clock in the morning. His uh, attitude was very much if somebody wanted to steal the chickens, they could steal some for food if they wanted to. So he wasn't going to shoot somebody over a chicken. So they get onto the chickens, and all of a sudden, these three people, the farmer and two helpers, are confronted by four gunmen. The four gunmen take the farmer, and uh, they first tied up his two workers, which is very abnormal from the person telling the story, um, who deals a lot with uh, investigations into farm murders. Very abnormal for this to happen, because normally the, um, the workers are involved in getting the information to the bad guys to attack the farm in the first place. So they're normally not touched. But either way, these two were tied up, and uh, two stood guard with the laborers, and the other two took the farmer back into the farmhouse and into the kitchen. And there they uh, were on either side of him with their guns. Apparently they were very sloppy with their guns. Uh, they weren't exactly pointing it at him all the time. And they told him in the kitchen that he must call his wife. So he called out, Lovey! Well, what they didn't know was that um, the farmer and his wife were Afrikaans-speaking, and Lovey was a coded message, an English coded message to the wife that there is trouble at hand. And so he called his wife, Lovey. The two thugs then took the farmer and pushed him into the passageway where they stood with him at the rape gate. Also, if you're not South African, quick overview. Uh, many people in South Africa have what they call a rape gate. They separate their sleeping quarters from the rest of their house. And so they put up a big barred gate inside their home. And the idea is if people want to break in and steal the TV and that, they can do it, but we don't want them in our bedrooms where we're sleeping at night. So they get to the rape gate. They're standing there. The two thugs are still very sloppy. They must have known that women freak out when they see guns, she's going to come out and she's going to open the rape gate and then they're going to do what they want to do to her and the farmer. Well, Lovey came out with a pistol out of the room. As she came out, she took two shots at the one man standing next to her husband, shot him twice in the chest. Uh, both shots just missed his heart. She then went slightly to the right and took another shot and hit the other thug in the head. And he died instantly. The one who got shot in the chest ran through the blood of the man who got shot in the head, ran out the back door, and the police came to fetch his corpse lying under a bush outside the back door area later on. And so these are the kinds of things that we need to consider as Christians. Was the, the lady, um, was it a righteous act in protecting her husband? What they didn't know was that she'd been, she'd been shooting for 15 years and had been a trainer on um, the local gun range to all the people in the farming community. So very bad reconnaissance by the bad guys. But many people will argue when I teach on this issue, saying, but violence is not the answer. No, violence isn't the answer. The Bible condemns violence. Violence is the immoral use of force. Self-defense is the moral use of force. Right? So we as Christians, we despise violence. Violence is the immoral use of force. How do we decide what is, what is moral and what is immoral? We look at God's law, God's word. He decides when we are allowed to defend ourselves and if we can use lethal force or not. This photograph was taken by Dr. Peter Hammond up in southern Sudan during the time of the war there. People sitting in church, soldiers sitting in church with their two swords, their AK-47, 
and the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And uh, as Dr. Peter says, sometimes there wasn't enough space in the churches for all the guns, so instead of having a hat rack or a cloak rack, like many of us might have in our churches, they had a gun rack on the tree outside, which they could quickly get to if they were attacked in any way. Men, we have two principal duties. Number one, protection. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. We need to be prepared to fight to protect our families. Provision is number two. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Very important passages. What does provision mean? To procure supplies or means of defense, or to take measures for counteracting or escaping an evil. That is what we should be doing, providing for our relatives. We also sometimes need common sense, which is very difficult to find these days, apparently. How many multiple victim shootings take place in police stations, in gun shops, or on shooting ranges where there are lots of guns around? Anybody take a guess? Not many. All right. These kinds of attacks with multiple victims happen in gun-free zones where the bad guys know that they can get away with murder, literally. Nobody's going to stand up against them. And I was at Parliament once with uh, Latlapa and Pechlele, who was the commander of the troops who attacked our church. Uh, I, I reached out to him with the gospel of the kingdom of God, and we were at Parliament to do some filming. And he introduced me to somebody, uh, one of his former troops, Caders, uh, they called. And he said, this is Charles van Beek, who returned fire at the St. James Massacre. And his next words were, there we th thought the church was a gun-free zone, but boy did Charles have a surprise for us. All right, so those were straight from the horse's mouth. Are there positive effects to having guns in society? Well, here's a quick look uh, from uh, my book, which I stole this from United Christian Action, a newsletter that Dr. Peter Hammond did. But here we show in the 20th century the governments that perpetrated crimes against their people and gun control precedes genocide. In other words, genocide can never take place in a country where the population is armed. In every country here, in Turkey, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, China, Uganda, Cambodia, and Rwanda, phew, 114 million people murdered by their own governments after they were disarmed. Here are the source documents and the dates that they applied gun control in those nations. We'll never find murder at this rate by government on its people if the population is an armed population. Uh, I've written a book called Shooting Back, The Right and Duty of Self-Defense on this issue. It's also a DVD available on it. Unfortunately, I don't have any available in South Africa now. I haven't been able to get back to the States to get more. So um, you can download that from Kindle if you would like to do that. Many times when I speak to people on this issue, we, we've got to consider this whole idea of love. And I, I'll say to people, 
Was it loving when Jesus Christ went into the temple and cleansed the temple? He took a whip and he beat people to get them out of the temple. Was that a loving act? Obviously, that sounds like a really confusing question, but if we break down our questions and we look at the actual um, definitions of words, well, what, how is love defined in the Bible? The Bible says love is the fulfillment of the law. If you're fulfilling the Ten Commandments, which is a, um, a shorter version of God's whole law, right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. You love people by applying God's law. You love God by applying God's law. And so, if Jesus Christ is love, and he was applying God's law, then that's the most loving thing he could have done, was chase the people out of stopping them from sinning any further. And in fact, there's an old theological teaching that if you have... Actually, it should be a new one, but we don't hear about it anymore uh, today. And that is if you have the strength and the power and the ability to stop somebody from raping or injuring or killing somebody else and you do nothing about it, you are an accomplice to that crime. You are an accomplice. Not that you are a coward. You're an accomplice. It's just as bad as you having taken part for not stopping the bad guy. Um, Just a few days ago, my son was driving down the road and he saw something weird. I thought, this is very strange. There's a man standing over here, a woman standing, they're looking at each other, and there's a girl running down the road very fast. So he said, well, let me stop and see what's going on here. So he stops, he walks up to the woman, and she's got a pepper spray out and a knife, and she's pointing it at this man in front of her. And she was elated to have Jason, my son, arrive behind her, and he asked what was going on. So she said, this man flashed at her. He pulled on his pants to show her and her daughter what he doesn't have. And then, when Jay, this man wasn't leaving the woman, he was, he was harassing her, he, was, he wasn't running away, stepping backwards or anything. When Jason arrived, he gapped it. He ran away. All right? Um, we don't know what would have happened because Jason arrived. Uh, the daughter came back. Jason phoned me at home and said, Dad, there's a flasher, he's flashed to this woman and her daughter. We need help. He's, he's run into the forest area by the canal. Uh, you and John Mark come as fast as possible. So I said, okay, which way, which way must I run? Where must I go? So he told me which way to run. And as we came into the Greenbelt area, there we saw this head popping up in the canal. So I ran straight for it. John Mark ran to the left. My 18-year-old Jason came from the right where he had just been helping this uh, lady um, with a stug. And we caught the guy sitting in the canal. Um, what could have happened? She could have been raped. All sorts of things could have happened um, if Jason hadn't stepped up. And she, she referred to Jason as her guardian angel. A man just taking a stand. And other people wrote to me afterwards and said, boy, there are many men that they know would never have stopped to help that woman. Jason couldn't even see what was going on. He just thought this was weird circumstances. Why is this kid running away down the road so fast and this woman standing facing this man alone. And so we, we see these, um, these ideas that we need to... Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, praise, praise the Lord for Jason. Praise the Lord for Jason and John Mark. Oh, by the way, John Mark's got a really nice gun. Um, it doesn't kill people, but it makes your life an absolute misery if you do something wrong. Uh, it shoots little pepper balls, round little pepper balls, but it looks like a proper gun. 
um, but it can't kill anybody. And inside these little pepper balls, it has mace spray and tear gas. And if you look it up, I can't remember the name of it, sorry, but if you look it up on the internet, um, why can't I remember the name? Anyway, they show you of how this thing is when it actually shoots people. And so John Mark was pointing this marker, for want of a better word, at the bad guy. And I said to him, if he runs away, you shoot him. All right? It would make his life a real misery. And then in the meantime, we found the armed response and we handed the bad guy over to the armed response. But either way, that's another weapon. You don't need a license for it or anything. Uh, it's called a burner, B-Y-R-N-A, burner. Uh, a great weapon uh, for you ladies, especially if uh, somebody's talking too much to you or asked to date you to shoot them. Um, Peter Hammond and I were on a, a radio program, again, um, on Radio Tigerberg once, and we had this lady phone into the program, and she was an armed lady. And she said she came walking out of N1 City into the parking lot one day, and there was a man sitting in her car, stealing things out of her cubbyhole. And so she's telling this story on the air for us, for what, a couple of tens of thousands of people listening. And she said, so I pulled out my gun, and I said to him, hey, punk, what do you think you're doing in my car? And so by this, by this time, Peter and I are almost rolling on the floor laughing. <laughs> so she says, and then I thought to myself, hold it. If I shoot him, there's going to be blood on my seats afterwards. <laughs> by this time, Peter and I had collapsed completely, you know, rolling around on the floor laughing. And she said, so I didn't shoot him, but he ran away very quickly. We couldn't even go back onto the air. We just we just pushed straight on to to, uh, to music, so that we could so that we could get off the f uh, floor, uh, get ourselves back to normal, and carry on with the program. Uh, I spoke to a young man in the Congo. I'm going to keep telling you stories. I'm I've been, I've been not going to have time for um, too late to give time for questions. But uh, I spoke to a young man in the Congo. He was a soldier, a rebel soldier. And to cut a long story short, he came to faith in Christ. I met him at a church, and I asked him about the time of being a rebel soldier in the Congo. And he told me how they used to surround, with their guns and arms and ammunition, they used to surround villages, shoot up the villages, take the women, capture them. They became sex slaves and cooks for them in the rebel movement, and they captured the young men and took them and forced them to become rebel soldiers. And I had one question for this young man who came to faith in Christ. I said, what would have happened if all the men in the villages that you wanted to attack, what happens if all the men were armed with guns and rifles? And he thought about it for two seconds and said, that would have made life very difficult for us. Right? You attack unarmed people if you want to get away with murder, literally. Uncle Philip and I... In uh, 2008, we had a Biblical Worldview Summit just like this. We went into town to go uh, do a radio recording for Radio Tigerberg for the Salt and Light program. And we were held up with guns and we got into a shootout in Kyalitra. And um, Uncle Philip uh, wrote a nice article about that afterwards. But uh, interesting circumstances again. The bad guys thought they could get away with anything. And uh, I returned fire at the bad guys. They ran away. But the funniest thing was the taxis that came past after the shootout, they were all going, thumbs up, yes, thank you for what you're doing, all very excited about 
the fact that I shot at the bad guys and they were running away. They might still be running. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your perfect word. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us not to be cowards, but to be faithful men and women of the word and applying it to every area of our lives, including violent attacks on us and our families. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be with us, that you'll protect us, that we will live according to your perfect will. Amen.